Joshua chapter 5, starting at verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went and said to him, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of, our, of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. My parents own a dog and cat hotel where they have uh, grooming and boarding for animals. And uh, they've owned it for quite some time. So growing up uh, during the summers or any time where I would need some extra money, I could work there. And I even work there now a couple days a week. And we've encountered a lot of different animals. So I have a lot of different experiences with dogs. And we have a lot of different dogs that come in. And when a new dog comes in, you kind of have to approach them a little bit carefully. Uh, kind of to kind of gauge how they're going to react to you. You know, you have some dogs that come in and they're just, you know, happy to see you and they pretend like you're, you're their lost, long lost friend, even though you've never met him before. They're, you know, licking you. There's other dogs that are kind of a little bit standoffish. They'll stay away from you. Um, if you move slowly, they'll kind of warm up. They're just kind of scared. And then there's other dogs that are just plain mean. You know, you go near their kennel and they just want to take your head off. And over the years, I've become pretty good at kind of figuring out how the dogs are going to react and kind of picking up those little signals. But there's a couple times where I've been pretty wrong on that. Uh, for example, a few years ago, a number of years ago now, um, there was this pit bull that came in and it was staying in the kennel. And near the end of its stay, we had to cut the dog's nails. Uh, so they brought the dog up, and I was responsible for holding the dog while my mom cut the nails. And a lot of dogs don't like their nails cut, and they kind of squirm around and, you know, might growl a little bit, but uh, usually it's not too bad. I just kind of hold them in place. But this dog went ballistic. Uh, I, I have my hand around him, and kind of in a headlock, and it was all teeth. And this was not a scared kind of growling or biting. This dog wanted to take my head off. And so I'm holding the dog, and pretty quickly my mom decided, okay, this is too dangerous. We can't cut this dog's nails. So she put the nail clippers down and kind of walked away. But the dog was still trying to get at me, still all teeth. And I'm thinking to myself, so what do I do now? I'm holding it in the headlock, and as soon as I let it go, it's going to eat my head off. Thankfully, adrenaline kicked in, and my dad took a noose and kind of pulled the dog away, and I jumped back, and it was all right. But it was scary. It was dangerous. Uh, another time, a couple, actually a few months ago, uh, there was this lab that my uh, mom and some other people were grooming and this lab, you know, labs for the most part tend to be happy and, you know, you rarely meet a lab that isn't friendly. And uh, some female employees were kind of working and, and brushing this dog. And so my mom said, can you go and help them? So I picked up a brush and I went over there and I go to pet its head and all of a sudden it lunged at me. And again, the adrenaline kicked in and I just fell back on the ground and it just nipped me. But it wanted to take my head off. Apparently it didn't like men. You know, and you kind of gauge these situations, and, and most of the time you get it right, but sometimes 
you get it wrong. And in the story that we're looking at today, Joshua, I think, has to kind of do the same thing. Joshua has to kind of gauge the risk that's in front of him. It says that he's near Jericho, and he raised his eyes and looked, and there's a man that's before him with a drawn sword indicating he's in a combat position. And Joshua needs to go over, and he needs to assess the threat. And I think initially he assesses the threat poorly. He misinterprets the risk that's in front of him. After all, we're told that this is just one man that's before Joshua with a drawn sword. And Joshua's one of the most powerful people in the area right now, and he has thousands of troops at his disposal. So when he goes over to him initially and he says, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Really, I think what he's saying is, so should we kill you or are you going to fight for us? It's one guy, thousands of people in an army, and yet this man is more powerful than he can imagine. It says in the text that he's the commander of the army of the Lord. And when Joshua discovers that this man is the commander of the army of the Lord, it says in the text that he hit the dirt. He falls on the ground and he worships. He recognizes at this point that he's in the presence of someone very powerful and potentially someone very dangerous. Now, who was this commander of the army of the Lord? We have very good reason to believe that this commander of the army of the Lord was God himself. It may have even been uh, what's called a Christophany, which is a time in Scripture when Jesus appears before he actually came to the earth. Because Jesus, he came in Bethlehem, born of the Virgin Mary, but he existed from all eternity past. He's always existed. He was never created. So this may be a time when Jesus appears before he appeared in the flesh. But we know that it's God himself for a few reasons. Number one, uh, Joshua fell down and he worshipped him, and, wor- and angels never accept worship. In the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments, it talks about having no other gods before the true God and, and worshipping one God. And so any time in the Scriptures where someone tries to worship an angel, or an angel will refuse that worship. But here, this commander of the army of the Lord accepts the worship. Second, the ground on which Joshua was standing is said to be holy. The only one that can make ground or anything holy is God himself. Third, we see in chapter 6, it seems like the story continues with the commander of the army of the Lord, but the wording is changed. It's changed from the commander of the army of the Lord to to this person being referred to simply as the Lord. So we have good reason to believe that this is God himself who's described as the commander of the army of the Lord and as a warrior. And this isn't the first time in the scriptures that we see God described as being a warrior. We see it in the Exodus account. In Exodus chapter 15, after God led the people of Israel out of Egypt, there was a song that was sung. It says in Exodus 15, 3-7, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Deuteronomy 1, 1-4 likewise says, When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you. You brought 
who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or, do, or be in panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes before you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. So God is described as being a warrior. Now, who are the Lord's armies? Who, who is he the commander of the armies? What does it mean that he's the commander of the armies of the Lord? Well, in one sense, the army of the Israelites were the, were the Lord's army. But I think he's also referring to something else here. I think he's also referring to a spiritual army. An army of the heavenly hosts. In, in the book of Judges, in the Judges chapter 5, Deborah and Barak have just defeated the forces of Cicero. Uh, Sisera. And after they defeat Sisera, they say this. They say, from heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. From heaven the stars fought. What they're indicating here is they're indicating that there were other forces that were fighting with them. That they were not fighting alone, but there were spiritual forces fighting with them. The prophet Micaiah has a vision of the heavenly host in 1 Kings 22 verse 19. He says, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. We see that when the servant of the, of the Lord, a servant of Elijah, was afraid because enemies were surrounding him and Elijah, Elijah prayed that his, the, the eyes of his servant would be open and that he would see the heavenly forces around them. And after he prays that, he says, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. So while it looked like this man was just a single man with a sword in a field, he was the commander of the armies of the Lord and he had behind him untold thousands of warriors fighting for him. But it was easy to bypass who he was because of his ordinariness. He just seemed like a single man in the field. He seemed like simple fighter, so much so that there was this ambiguity that Joshua didn't even know who he was fighting for. And yet he's the commander of the armies of the Lord. I think the same thing can happen to us in regards to how we view Christ. In a sense, Christ is ordinary. He became a human being. He became flesh. He healed people. He cared for people. He died on the cross. And in that ordinariness, we can kind of forget that he's the commander of the cosmos. I think Peter forgot that. Remember the story of how the religious leaders come to arrest Jesus. And what does Peter do? He takes out his sword and he's ready to fight. And he cuts off the ear of of the servant of the high priest. And in doing so, in essence, he was saying, I need to fight for you. I'm going to be a sword for you since you don't have a sword. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to protect you. And yet, listen to what Jesus says to him. Jesus says in Matthew 26, Put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father in heaven? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. Jesus says, you, you, you think that I'm just like that man with a sword 
that I'm defenseless, but I'm the commander of the armies of the Lord. We see even in his death and resurrection, Jesus is described in warlike, victorious imagery. In Colossians chapter 2, it says he's disarmed the rulers and authority and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so he was victorious over Satan and the forces of evil in the cross. And we're told in the book of Revelation that one day he will come back and he will come back, ironically, with a sword. Revelation 19 says, His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. That's the God we serve. That's the Jesus that we serve. That's the baby that was born in a manger. The man who was beaten and hung on the cross. A warrior so powerful that is terrifying, but so good that it's comforting. And his power ought to give us a sense of awe, wonder, respect, maybe even fear. But it also should comfort us in knowing that he, if He's that powerful, if He's that mighty, that He can handle the things that are happening in our lives. So, if we understand who He is, how should we respond to Him? If we understand that Jesus is the warrior God who commands the host of the heavenly angels, how should we respond to Him? Again, we see that Joshua initially responds in an incorrect way. He says, who are you for? Are you for us or for our adversaries? And I love the way that the commander of the armies of the Lord responds. He just says, no. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? No. Are you on our side or their side? No. I think Joshua is asking this man, so who are you loyal to? Are you loyal to me or are you loyal to our enemies? And he's like, no, I'm, I'm the commander here. The question is, are you loyal to me? You see, God will not take sides. Is God a Democrat or a Republican? No. Is God a Baptist or a Methodist or a Presbyterian? No. Is God an American or Canadian, Pakistani, or an Iraqi? No. Is God rich or is God poor? No. And God will not fit himself into our patterns of classification. He is all by himself. He's not going to choose a side. He is a side. We see this back in the book of Exodus or in God told uh, Moses in a similar kind of episode in the burning bush to go and free his people. Moses said, so what if they ask who you are? What, what should I say your name is? And he's probably thinking to himself, so there's a lot of gods in Egypt. I grew up in Egypt, and so should I say that you're uh, Amon or Horus or Ra, the sun god? Like, what's your name? What's, how do we classify you? And remember how God responds. He says, I am who I am. I'm in a completely different category. You can't fit me into the categories that you have. And we see a number of examples in 
the Gospels where Jesus, again, will not fit himself into those categories. In Matthew chapter 19 and Mark 10, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say to him, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And when they were asking that question, they're asking him, So take a side. Because during that time frame, there were different schools of thought, two different rabbis that taught different things in regard to marriage. Uh, The school of Hillel taught that uh, one could divorce one's wife for any reason. If it was uh, even, you know, burning uh, dinner, you could divorce your wife for that reason. Uh, Shammai taught that it had to be because of sexual immorality. And so here the the religious leaders are saying, so pick a side. Are you on Shammai's side or Hillel's side? And how does Jesus respond? He responds by quoting Scripture. He, by reiterating the fact that marriage was meant to be a lifelong union. And even though, in essence, he sides with Shammai, he quotes Scripture and he points to the activity of God and how God has formed this union. In Matthew chapter 22, the religious leaders come up to Jesus and say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And again, they're trying to trap him. They're trying to get him to take sides. Because if he says no, then he's an insurrectionist. He doesn't support Rome. And if he says yes, then he doesn't support his own people because the Jews kind of believed, or many Jews believed, that you didn't have to pay taxes to Caesar. And so what does Jesus do? He doesn't take a side. He's not going to be classified by those classifications. He says, take a coin. Do you have a coin? He says, whose inscription is on it? They said, Caesar. They says, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. Finally, Luke 12, 13 and 14, a man comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Jesus says, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrary over you? Now, he was certainly qualified to make that judgment. But that wasn't his calling. He wasn't going to just give someone ammunition. He wasn't just going to side with someone. He wanted people to follow him. Now, don't get me wrong. Now, there's a sense in which God sides with people. He sides with the oppressed, with the downtrodden, with the poor. In Romans 8.31, it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? But when I'm saying that God doesn't take sides, I'm saying that God will not fit into our categories. And He will not adjust Himself to us. And if we're we're trying to get God to fit into our categories or to use God as ammunition to support uh, our viewpoints, He will not go along with that. Uh, A friend of Abraham Lincoln is said to came up to him one day and uh, confidently reassured him and said, I'm confident that God is on our side. And this is how Abraham Lincoln responded. He said, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. For God is always right. There's a story about a lighthouse that many people uh, attribute that it's true. It probably never happened, but it's a powerful story and illustration. Uh, There was once a captain who was traveling in the dark night and he saw some faint, faint lights in the distance. And immediately he told his signalman, alter your course 10 degrees south, or to send a message that said, alter your course 10 degrees south. 
But promptly a message was returned that was received as, alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain got angry. His command had been ignored, so he sent a second message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am the captain. Soon another message was received back. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I am seaman third class Jones. Immediately, the captain was in a rage and he sent a third message, knowing the fear that it would evoke. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a battleship. Then the reply came, alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a lighthouse. So God will not adjust to us. We adjust to Him. And if we're trying to get Him to move, He's not going to move. So here's the point. Jesus doesn't take sides. Jesus makes worshipers. Jesus doesn't take sides. Jesus makes worshipers. Jesus didn't come to the earth to show us that some of us are right and some of us are wrong. Rather, He came to show us that all of us are wrong, but all of us can be made right. You see, when we get a glimpse of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, it changes us. It makes us worshipers. Recall Joshua's response after he found out just who this commander of the army of the Lord was. He hit the dirt. He worshipped. Look at what he says. He says, what does the Lord say to his servant? The commander of all the forces of Israel, Joshua, the most powerful person in the region, the person who was the leader of the people who, uh, the people were, of the land were shuddering because, out of fear because the Israelites were coming. This person is on the ground, his face to the ground, worshiping someone greater than he is. When we get a glimpse of the greatness of who Jesus is, we'll do the same thing and we'll bow down and say, God, what do, you, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to hear from you? What in my life is not pleasing to you? Because sometimes we can have this tendency to use God as a weapon. Rather than worship Him as the commander of the armies of the Lord, we can use Him as a weapon. We have an opinion about something and so maybe we go to Scripture to find a verse that will confirm our opinion to kind of feel like we have God on our side. Or, or maybe even worse, in our culture, we tend to kind of create our own conception of God sometimes. You say, my God would never do this, or my God would never do that. Or maybe we have a circumstance in our life or a path that we want to journey down, and may, we know that it's not God's will, but we try to bring God along. You know, I've had people tell me, or at least one person tell me, you know, I know God is not pleased with this. I know God says it's wrong, but he told me it's okay. You know, it, and we try to get God to go along and use him as ammunition to fuel our journey rather than turn and bow and hear what he wants to say to us. But when we get a glimpse of how great he is, it changes us. Last year, um, during the solar eclipse, the total solar eclipse, there was a, or right afterwards, there was a video that kind of went viral of a weatherman and his response to that solar eclipse. His name was Tom Skilling from Chicago's WGN. And his response to this uh, event was quite endearing. He said this a few minutes before uh, the solar eclipse. He says, We've been told people start sobbing. 
But he found himself unable to continue. He said, I'll get my act together, guys. During the eclipse itself, his crew trained one camera on the moon and one on skilling, as he repeated in awe over and over, look at that, look at that, wow. When asked about his emotional response, the meteorologist said he wasn't ashamed. He says, I'm kind of an emotional guy, and it snuck up on me. I was overwhelmed by the enormity of it. It makes you realize we're a very, very small part of a huge universe. Now that was a person's response to something that was much greater than he was. And really all it was was planetary movements. But imagine when we get a glimpse of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Imagine when we get a glimpse of the one who commands the armies of the Lord. Listen to how Ezekiel the prophet describes the throne of the Lord. Ezekiel 1.25 says, And there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire closed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was a brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of his likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the the voice of one speaking. Imagine that God, the God who sits on the throne, who commands the armies of the Lord. Think about the fact that He loved you so much that He became a baby for you and for me. Think about the fact that He endured all the temptations that we endure. Think about the fact that He was beaten and bruised, crucified for you and me. That the God of all creation, the commander of the armies of the Lord, did that for us. When we see that, when we understand that, when that gets a grip on our hearts, it ought to transform how we live. It ought to make us cry out as Joshua did, what would you say to your servant? God, I'm here. I'm on the ground. I'm worshiping you. Jesus doesn't take sides. Jesus makes worshipers. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you are the great warrior God who commands the armies of the Lord. That you can do in one moment more than we could ever do in a lifetime. That you could call down legions of angels at your command. We thank you for your greatness. We thank you for how powerful you are. But we thank you also that you loved us enough to come to the earth to die on the cross for us so that we could have freedom and so that we could have a relationship with you. Lord, I pray that the gospel, the story of what you've done for us would grip our hearts. That when we see the greatness of all that you are and that all that you have done for us, we would fall down and worship. Say, God, what do you have for me? How do you speak to your servant? Lord, help us to be gripped by your gospel. Help us to be people who are changed 
by your cross. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.